Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with award-winning journalist and former Washington Post ombudsman, Andrew Alexander, about security needs for reporters both internationally and domestically. Andy just finished an in-depth report for National Public Radio about the death of two of its journalists in Afghanistan in June. He talks with us about security needs globally and the heightened need for reporter security here at home. Andy, I know that you were one of the co-authors of the uh, what's been labeled an independent audit Uh, looking at the death of two NPR journalists back in June in Afghanistan. Uh, NPR apparently commissioned you and also uh, a First Amendment lawyer, David Bodney, to uh, look at this situation. What was your task? Well, basically, uh, what happened was on June 5th, uh, there were four NPR journalists traveling in Afghanistan, doing what journalists do. They were in a very uh, dangerous place, uh, Helmand province, and they were trying to uh, verify claims by the Afghan military that the area is basically uh, becoming secured. They were on a convoy, in a convoy of uh, Afghan army vehicles, going from a place, a provincial capital called Lashkargar, to about maybe 35 miles away to a little town called Marja. And they were ambushed there, and two people were killed. One was David Gilkey, who uh, is arguably the greatest American combat photographer until his death, and another uh, um, correspondent for NPR, Zabi Tamana, uh, who was an Afghan who uh, was a journalist in Afghanistan. And um, what happened after this, this hit NPR pretty hard, uh, particularly Gilkey was sort of a beloved character uh, within NPR. And the management of NPR moved quickly to investigate. They hired myself and David to do two things. One is try to unravel what happened that day. In other words, was there anything in existing security protocols at NPR that could have been uh, that were not followed, that, that might have caused the deaths of Gilkey or Tamana had they been followed. And then more broadly, and this was the, the larger mandate we had, to look at security protocols across NPR, not just at 17 foreign bureaus and the scores of people that are employed there, but even to look at domestic situations uh, where security needs to be front and center, uh, especially because of 
actually a lot of threats growing out of uh, Trump rallies uh, during the campaign and coverage of the um, conventions where people were concerned or racial strife. So the goal overall was simply, is there anything additional that NPR should be doing or could be doing to reduce the risk to journalists, foreign and domestic, uh, that go into harm's way? And I know that you recently issued that report and you uh, submitted it to Elizabeth Jensen, the uh, ombudsman at at Mm -hmm. NPR, and uh, she wrote a column back on January 24th saying that she was not going to release the report but basically endorsing your findings. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, the, the report, I, I give NPR a lot of credit for this uh, in, in terms of transparency, and Elizabeth in her column actually, uh, uh, she's an independent ombudsman, so she acts independent from NPR, but she gave them credit, too, for sharing this very widely. So it was, it was a confidential report, but shared with uh, about 800 people across NPR. So, you know, I think the expectation is at some point it would get out. But NPR, in advance, shared it with Elizabeth, and, and said she could write about it. And she did very carefully uh, not, to dis- not to sort of get the nub of what we were talking about, but she did not disclose uh, some of the, really some of the sensitive uh, security recommendations that we, re- that we passed along. Well, let's uh, move away from NPR per se. Uh, you were the ombudsman at the Washington Post, but you were also a bureau chief for a number of years and, and monitored uh, foreign correspondence and actually did some of it uh, yourself throughout your your career. Uh, let, let's talk about the, the degree of safety or lack thereof to foreign correspondence today. How does it compare to days when you were in the field or when you were monitoring people in the field? Well, in a nutshell, it, it is just much more dangerous for people overseas today doing this kind of work. Uh, I did, back in my reporting days, uh, I did some of this uh, uh, conflict reporting. I'm certainly not a war correspondent, but I covered a number of insurgencies. And then, as you noted, as the bureau chief for Cox Newspapers, I ran the foreign staff. So we had foreign bureaus in seven uh, foreign cities, and we had people in harm's way all the time. Back when I did this, uh, when I went out with a, uh, an insurgency group, say in Angola or in Northern Africa, um, they wanted publicity, and it was in their best interest to protect you uh, because they wanted their story out, and they wanted to see you get home safely. That has all changed today. Uh, we're seeing uh, terrorist groups increasingly kidnap Western journalists, holding them for ransom. Uh, or killing them for propaganda purposes. Uh, we saw that in 2014 with uh, American journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, both uh, beheaded by ISIS. Um, and, uh, and we are finding a lot of evidence that these terrorist groups will talk to each other. And so there is always the risk that you go out with one terrorist group and another says, look, uh, we'll, we'll pay you $3 million to uh, have you hand that journalist over to us. Um, it's it's a pretty murky world, uh, very very dangerous, and um, it presents all sorts of um, dilemmas for news organizations. Starting with the fact when you deal with kidnapping, should you pay ransom for a kidnapped reporter, knowing that the money will be used to finance more terrorism? 
and you even get into uh, the weeds on these these questions. Uh, should you even tell your correspondents whether or not you're willing to pay, knowing that if they get kidnapped, that kidnappers will torture them, trying to find out, A, uh, is your news organization, does it have a policy where it's willing to pay? And B, if they do, uh, do you know how much they're willing to pay? <laughs> and right. that's, a, that's a very difficult sort of moral decision that news organizations uh, uh, have to look at. Uh, most American news organizations, by the way, uh, do not pay or are very reluctant, but you can't control their family members. And uh, and then anecdotally, we know that some European news organizations have paid. So it's dicey. Technology allows reporting like we've never had it before. But at the same time, doesn't that heighten uh, security problems? Yes, it does. And this is where probably the the greatest security threats come from. News organizations still put their correspondents through what we call hostile environment training courses before deploying them. But now there are many additional types of threats and many relate to technology. So for instance, laptops, mobile devices, satellite phones, uh, all of these are necessary for the conflict reporting, but they create enormous security risks. So an example would be GPS-enabled mobile devices. They can be tracked by those who want to kill a reporter, or uh, what often happens is that they will track that reporter, their conversations, and they will let them then uh, leave the scene or leave the country, and then these people will go to the people that the journalists had been talking with and uh, and target them, kill them, um, these uh, because they've provided information to the journalists. Uh, some countries try to confiscate reporters' laptops and infect them with malware, surveillance software. This is very common in China. And so all this is leading to the need for journalists to pay increasing attention to encryption, especially when they're in conflict zones. And it seems to be uh, an ongoing battle, though, does it not? I mean, once uh, encryption is, is in place, somebody will overwrite it, and <laughs> it, it just keeps going in a vicious cycle. Yeah, it does. This, this reminds me, for, for people in the audience who are old enough to remember uh, Mad Magazine, they used to have a cartoon called Spy versus Spy. Right. And, and, and one spy would come up with a way to outwit the other, and then the other one would would top that and it just kept going and going. So we're, we're really in a battle. And the state players in hostile environments, places that are very hostile to journalists, Russia, China, Turkey, uh, they are routinely monitoring the movements of uh, journalists. So there's an added responsibility for the journalists not only to protect themselves, but to protect all of the people that they deal with. One of the things I think that's difficult, and, and most people I think are listening would not realize this, is that more and more freelancers are, are involved, uh, less and less paid staff uh, involved in, in foreign correspondence and stories. But the difficulty I see is what responsibility does the mother organization have for, for a freelancer? For example, what responsibility would... NPR or back in the old days when you were with Cox uh, have for a freelancer that that presents all kinds of legal and ethical issues it does and there's been of course a sea change uh, that is basically caused by the fact that uh, 
the upheaval in media means that uh, most news organizations have less money uh, to pay for their own people to go overseas. They then, as you pointed out, rely more on freelancers. These can either be U.S. freelancers who are in a foreign country, or they can be local hires who are journalists. That is much less costly. But when you hire people who are not on your full-time staff, I think it almost gets into a moral discussion of of, uh, uh, what obligation you feel to pay insurance uh, or pay for safety training or uh, if, if a freelancer gets wounded in pursuit of a story, will the news organization pay for medical evacuation? Early on, I think probably eight or ten years ago when this was really starting to, to kick in, um, I was personally stunned at the number of news organizations that really didn't step up to the plate and uh, honor, if not legal obligations, moral obligations to protect the people that they had hired on a part-time basis. Now I think what you're seeing is that uh, many news organizations are saying, look, if we're hiring somebody to do something like that, to put them in harm's way, we are going to give them the same protections, uh, reinforcement financially or whatever with insurance that we would a full-time employee. Um, I know NPR has done that and a number of other major news organizations do, but many don't. And here's the dilemma for the freelancer. If you, say, are a photographer and... um, a news organization calls up and says, look, we'd like to send you to the fringes of uh, uh, ISIS territory in Syria. We know it's dangerous, but we we think you're good at it. You have a real difficult decision if you don't have insurance as to whether or not to take that assignment, knowing that if you say no, uh, the chances are the news organization may not call you again. And this right. is how you make a living. So it's a it's a tough situation. And what happens next? Do you think that more news organizations will adopt uh, this kind of insurance and and sort of a, a, a protective view of freelancers or not? I think they will. Even given the financial pressures on many news organizations, I think the uh, sort of the moral imperative is spreading. And I think something else that uh, news organizations are doing is that they are, even with freelancers, they're increasingly uh, trying to help those freelancers either by providing training to them, hostile environment training before they go on assignments, or helping them by providing security firms that will help them plan their trips. This is a has been a trend ever since uh, we got involved in Iraq and Afghanistan. Most major news organizations hire these outside firms, uh, security firms, and some of them are excellent. They are staffed by security people who were maybe uh, former special ops soldiers for Western military units. So they really know their stuff. So what they do is, before the reporter goes anyplace, these people work their sources. Um, They can give you a pretty good assessment of uh, the level of danger in certain areas. They can provide you with local contacts that might be confidential, but can be very helpful to uh, advising journalists where to go, where not to go, who to deal with, and all that. So I think people, uh, this is moving in the right direction, but um, you know, it remains an issue. We'll be back after this message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it.
The Scripps College of Communication was awarded $878,000 by Ohio University for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of equipment, processes, intellectual property, and award-winning scholars and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. As I understand it, the the old form was more, let's just trust our field reporters to make decisions on their own, to, to be out there. They're on the scene. They know better. They, they can assess risks. And the home office, so to speak, or the home organization, the editor or assignment person basically took a, a – maybe not hands-off, but at least a more detached uh, view of of what was going on. Is that still in place? I think to some extent it is. And and my personal view, having uh, managed reporters in the field in hostile environments and been there long ago myself, is that you do want to trust your people on the scene. They they have a feel for things. Um, However, as uh, our work for NPR noted, uh, you can become complacent if you have been to a war zone six or seven times thinking that you know uh, what's going to happen. And the thing about uh, conflicts is you never know what's going to happen. I mean, it happens at the most inopportune times and in the worst ways possible. So you want to trust your people, uh, but you want to keep them on their toes. So how do you keep them on your toes? Well, that's where the home office can really come into play by creating uh, very detailed checklists and protocols. The, uh, many news organizations, before anyone goes into a conflict, they convene a meeting of their top people, including security people, people who have been to that location before, and they have a long checklist of things. Uh, you know, have we looked at this? Are we prepared for that? Um, do we have protocols for reporting in? Uh, do we have the technology in place? So many, many news organizations today equip their reporters in hostile environments with tracking devices. So at the home office, they know exactly where they are at all times within five feet of where they should be. And if they don't report in, if they suddenly they are, uh, their tracking device goes dead or suddenly it's a half an hour since they had a movement and they should have been moving, then they know, gosh, we better call our security people or start working our sources to find out if they're all right. So the, the, the home office has a big role in that. The editor, the person back uh, in the States, I think part of your suggestion was that they go through the same training that the field reporter mm-hmm. go through. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, so most news organizations, as I mentioned, will, uh, before they send somebody into, say, an Iraq situation or Afghanistan, uh, they will send them uh, on these courses called hostile environment training. And they they can cover everything from um, uh, defensive driving to uh, uh, your Internet security or your digital security to basic first aid and all that. But um, I think what 
many news organizations found uh, was that some editors who were deploying these people um, really had no appreciation for that. And so putting the editors also through this training, letting them be alert to the danger signs is very important. And the other thing that uh, is increasingly emerging is um, making editors aware, as well as correspondents aware, uh, to pay greater attention to uh, PTSD-type symptoms for correspondents. Correspondents who cover dangerous situations see unbelievable human suffering. It cannot help but affect you. And uh, again, these are people who are really driven journalists. They're, they're reluctant to, um, to acknowledge that they have a problem this way. And on the management side, it's very sensitive from an HR standpoint to go to an employee and say, I think you seem a little wigged out. I think you need help. You have to be very careful in doing that. So a lot of news organizations now are developing peer-to-peer awareness programs so that maybe not a manager uh, goes to, to a colleague, but maybe their colleague, the person who's sitting across the desk, is attuned to these symptoms and can say, look, Bob, let's have a conversation about what you're going through and then get them some help. What is the um, responsibility of the news organization in your mind uh, after the fact, though? If somebody comes back, they're off their assignment, uh, they're, they're, they're evidencing some issues, uh, do, you, do you feel that it should be the news organization's responsibility not only to intercede but to, to care for that person? I, I would take it slightly differently. I, okay. I, don't think they, I don't think they have an obligation to intercede. And again, that, that is, um, that's dicey from a, an HR standpoint. And, and here's why. If, if you say to a uh, sort of a grizzled war correspondent, uh, I think you're exhibiting signs of, of stress, and then you don't give them their next assignment to go cover another war, they are very likely to allege that uh, they don't have a problem and that they are being penalized by people because they they act strangely. So that's the that's the delicate part of it. Now, where the the news organization does have an obligation, I think, is to provide um, assistance for whoever needs it. Who uh, uh, so. Some news organizations, I can't, I can't tell you which ones, but they are now um, getting around this, uh, this concern about what, uh, spotting the effects afterwards by saying, look, anybody who we're sending into a war zone uh, or into a tragedy zone where you're going to see just terrible human suffering, we're going to put them through an awareness course before they go so that they are aware of some of the, uh, the signs that they may exhibit themselves that they need help, and then also at the same time to provide a lot of professional help if those people need it. So there's a lot of organizations, and, and this is, would extend beyond news organizations, they have employee assistance programs where you can call an outside number and say, um, I'm, I'm wigged out about what I saw, I need help, and they will put you in touch with a specialist, and no one in, the, in management will know that you even called. So that's really important to stress that type of thing. Now, for our listeners who may think reporters are just observers and not participants, 
and, and in a sense that's true. But what I hear you saying is that oftentimes reporters will come back from these terrible war zone situations or other uh, places of tragedy uh, with some of the same kinds of symptoms and problems that uh, military personnel would have. Yeah, they, they certainly do exhibit that. And, you know, it, it's natural. In many ways, the reporters who are covering a war, um, they are on a daily basis looking for the conflict. I mean, they, they, are, <laughs> they are undeniably strange characters, uh, the, the, particularly photographers who have to get so close to the action. My experience with many of these photographers is um, they, uh, they are pure journalists. They are trying to reflect reality, and for that reason, we, we should admire their desire to get to where things are happening. But oddly, um, they're not cowboys. Many of them are, uh, are very risk-averse, and in some cases, some that I've known, um, they're terrified by war, and they are really sort of strangely affected by it on a daily basis when they're there. So those are the ones I would worry about as a manager. I don't, I don't know how I would deal with them, but you know you want to be want to be very careful that you're not continually sending them back where this uh, this problem is being exacerbated. Um, I recently was talking to someone about a uh, someone who had been in a war zone uh, who colleagues thought was exhibiting this uh, this behavior, and when he came back to the home office, um, they knew enough to know that they should not put him at a desk um, where there were people behind him. In other words, give him a desk where his back is against the wall. The right. reason, the sort of sudden movements behind him uh, really affected him. And it's because you're always on guard when, you're, when you've been in these situations. Let's move, if we could, from the international scene to the domestic scene. I think uh, any... Uh, observer would say that we're in a hostile media environment uh, at the moment, at least between the federal government and and the media. Uh, this trickles down to people and organizations uh, uh, out uh, in the rest of the country. What threats did they pose that to domestic reporters that may have been amped up over the last couple of years? Yeah. That's a, this is a, a trend. Uh, it's, it's troubling. Early on in the last election cycle, um, partly I think because Donald Trump was uh, so vocally um, criticizing the press and often at his rallies pointing to the press area, saying they are the, they are the enemy in effect. They are, they are scum. They're not people to be trusted. Um, Trump may have been doing that for effect, he surely was, but he can't control the people that are his followers. And so there were a lot of threats against reporters, uh, a lot of jostling reporters. It became so concerning that many news organizations, NPR being one of them, actually uh, started ordering up hostile environment training for its reporters who were either covering the campaign or who would be covering the political conventions. Now, it turned out that both political conventions did not have major violence. But um, there have been a lot of death threats against reporters. Um, in the age of social media, some 
people learn things about the backgrounds of reporters and just determine that they are people that um, you know should be in some way physically controlled. Uh, and then layer on top of that, uh, these many situations we've had, starting with Ferguson, where you have urban unrest. And I think it's coming home to roost. I, I think that news organizations are saying, boy, it's not just foreign war zones, but uh, we have a real problem here. And in many ways, we can't control the conduct of some hostile citizens. You mentioned social media, Andy, and, and social media is certainly a way that a lot of people at least get news tips or get links to, to news stories. It's used by reporters more and more. Uh, on a daily basis. How does that play into this whole idea of both international and domestic security? Yeah, it's a, it's a big issue. Uh, it's, uh, I can tell you that in our report to NPR, we, one of the things we urge them to do is pay more attention to this. Let's give an example on the foreign front. If you happen to be in Iraq or Afghanistan on assignment as a correspondent, and you post a photo of yourself on Facebook, or on Twitter, uh, uh, with you uh, um, and your locally hired fixer or local uh, helper as you're covering a car bombing, for instance, there's a possibility you have just inadvertently targeted your fixer or his family by identifying him as someone who is aiding an American. Um, you have to be very, very sensitive to that. When you're dealing with security, foreign or domestic, really what you're trying to do is just reduce the odds constantly, uh, limit the odds that help the odds that somebody will not get targeted. So social media is a big thing. And one of the problems for reporters is that news organizations are, on the one hand, saying be careful, but they're also saying, no, we want you to be on social media. And that's how we get a lot of our audience. So the trick is, how do you do it in a way that is very sensitive to the security, not only of yourself, but of others? Since the campaign is over domestically and, and we now have uh, inaugurated a, a new president, do you see the, the dangers uh, lessening or is the demonizing of the media that we know is continuing, is it creating the same kind of environment that was back on the campaign trail? That's hard for me to say uh, because we as we're doing this, it's early in the Trump administration. Certainly, uh, the rhetoric coming from this White House has been that the press is not merely adversarial, which is their their role. They should be asking tough questions, but that the press is the enemy. I think that's dangerous. I, I think that you are emboldening people who don't understand what the limits are. Um, we, we tend to think that... Um, this can't get out of control. But those of us who are old enough to remember Watergate may recall that members of the plumbers group, at one point, there was a suggestion made that um, Jack Anderson, who at that time was a muckraking, very well-known columnist, should be taken out. And that was interpreted by people as part of this group as, we have to kill him on the streets of Washington. And it was only after someone realized what was going on, they said, no, 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 we're not saying that. We're not saying kill him. We have to, you know, push back against him. Well, that's the type of thing you worry about, that you've emboldened someone uh, and they just take it into their own, own hands. And um, this type of rhetoric is not helpful. And I would also say it is not helpful in the efforts to uh, promote a free press 
in autocratic regimes around the country, around the world. So when Donald Trump uh, attacks the media so vociferously uh, and calls them scum, he is basically giving cover to people like Putin or Erdogan in Turkey to say, yeah, I've been saying this all along, and it's okay for me to get rough with reporters because even the United States of America is doing it. That's a really troubling trend. Well, Andy, thank you so much again for giving us an insight into media. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Today, we've talked with award-winning journalist Andrew Alexander about increasing needs for security for reporters, both internationally and domestically. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please go to iTunes Podcasts and rate us or review us. If you have questions or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me by email at hudson at ohio.edu. That's hudson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.